this morning as we continue our time in our series, A Theology of the Church. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. And as you're getting there, I want to point your attention to a book by the name of Reclaiming Glory. It's written by a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention by the name of Mark Clifton. And in his book, he talks about churches that are in need of revitalization, churches that need to come back to following Jesus as their head. And what he says in Reclaiming Glory is he says that a declining and dying church testifies of a long-forgotten king. Listen, a dying and declining church testifies of a long-forgotten king. So this morning, as we look to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we're going to see that we do have a king who is the head over all things and the church. So as we think about kind of getting from this uh, stratosphere of the church is, we're going to start to slowly get down to a ground level. All right, what does this theology then mean for us in the everyday? So what does it mean to follow Jesus as the head of the church? So Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 20 through 23. If you would stand with me in the honor of reading God's word together. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of his word. You may be seated. So last week during our time, we looked at the reality from 1 Peter that the church at its very bare level is the people of God redeemed by the Son and indwelt by the Spirit to powerfully proclaim the gospel to the world. So as we continue to develop this doctrine of the church from the Scripture, Now Ephesians tells us that not only are we the people of God redeemed by the Son and dwelt by the Spirit, we also are those who follow a victorious king. We follow a victorious king. So our main point for this morning is that Christ has ultimate authority over the church in every matter because he has authority over everything. Christ has ultimate authority over the church in every matter because he has authority over everything. Now the reality is is that sometimes we can say that, we can ascribe, we can have, so to speak, the bumper sticker of our lives saying, Jesus is everything. Philippians 4.13, I can do everything. But in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hurts, we are not proclaiming a Christ who is powerful to impart our power through our own weakness. We want to say, I'd rather just not be weak. But Paul in 1 Corinthians says that his power is made perfect in our weakness. So we may say that Christ is the head and sometimes forget what does that actually mean. Christ is the head. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Yes, I totally affirm that. But in the way that we 
discipline our kids, in the way that we respond to our spouses, in the way that I come to work during the week, in the way that I prepare sermons, in the way that we direct every aspect of our lives, we could very easily Forget that Christ is the head. So, if Christ has ultimate authority over the church in every matter because he has authority over everything, the reason I'm preaching this sermon is so that we would commit together to follow Jesus in our corporate and individual worship and direct our every effort in ministry and in life in light of his work and his rule. That we might commit together to follow Jesus in our corporate and individual worship and would direct every effort, every strength that we have seeking to proclaim Jesus is the head of the church, the head of my life, the head of everything. And we would direct our every effort of ministry at FBC Eastwood in light of this truth. So we may be doing this. We may be doing this well. This is not so much a warning sermon as it is just a reminder sermon. This is the truth of Scripture that Jesus, above all else, I think pretty highly of the pastoral office because I think the Bible speaks very highly of the pastoral office. But there is, similar to John in his gospel, there is someone above me, one who I am unworthy to even touch the sandal of. That I, as Peter says, am an under-shepherd, and Jesus is the chief shepherd. So we, and I, and those in leadership, seek to direct our every effort to Jesus. So we may be doing this, but I want us to know why we were doing this. So here's two examples of things in our statement of faith and in our membership covenant that reaffirm Christ is head. Okay? Statement of faith. Each congregation operates under the lordship of Christ. And in such congregation, each member is responsible and accountable to Christ as Lord. We have a corporate element to that, that we as a collective body, when we get together to govern, when we get together to vote, when we get together to put things forward, we as a corporate body should seek to follow Jesus. More than what I want, more than what we want. That if, if we do what Jesus says we should do, we're going to be okay. This isn't in my notes, so this is just a bonus. So if we go over, it's my own fault. All throughout the New Testament, and even here in Ephesians, we see... <laughs> We see that Christ is the head. And you boil that down to just its fundamental nature. That if Christ is the head, the, the center of all of the, the neurological capacities to be able to move our fingers, to be able to, to um, understand even the, the ability or inability sometimes to recall what's been in our mind in a sermon or something like this, Without the head, it's worthless. So too, a church, a local church, not following Jesus, it's worthless. It's like, as Mark Clifton said, it's like a kingdom that has a long forgotten king. But when we recenter and refocus our every action and ministry, on what Jesus has done, we will, as Paul says in, I'm trying to remember if it's 1st or 2nd Corinthians, we will go out both in our individual and our corporate 
capacities and being the aroma of Christ to the world. So a church without Christ as the head is as worthless as a body without a head. So that is our statement of faith. There in the back of our bulletin, we have our membership covenant. And here's what it says. We acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church, the ultimate and final authority in all matters. In a couple weeks, we'll look at the message that Jesus calls us to proclaim because it's one thing to say we're going to follow Jesus because there are a lot of people in our world that are saying, I'm following Jesus. And they're affirming things that Jesus never affirmed and they're denying things that Jesus never denied. So we follow Jesus when we're rightly following his word. So we must know what his word says. That's the statement of faith. That's the membership covenant. But more important than either of those two documents is what does the word of God say? What does the word of God say? Here in these three verses in Ephesians chapter 1, I believe Paul talks about this victory of Christ and its implications of the church. We'll see that the victory of Christ is ultimate. That, secondly, the victory of Christ secures the victory of the church. And thirdly, that the church is a visible outpost and proclaims the victory. So Paul secures the victory of Christ in its extent, its reality, and its duration. Look at how he talks about it in Ephesians chapter 1. That the victory or reign of Christ is ultimate. It's a reality. So whether we want to individually or even as a corporate body want to affirm and worship this victorious king, that's really up to us to decide. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of churches that close each and every year because they have made a decision to not follow Christ and to not follow his word. But as the saying goes, The captain goes down with his ship, and if the ship is sinking, I'm going to go down preaching a victorious Jesus and a sufficient Bible. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you. So if we continue to preach a victorious Jesus and a sufficient Word and actually live this out, let's leave the rest up to Him. So the victory of Christ is ultimate. We see it first as a reality. It's grounded in the work of Christ, that we are the people of God redeemed by the Son. Paul in Ephesians 1 has already grounded the, the work of Christ to being integral, that we're now in Him. We're not disconnected from him. We're in him. In verse 20, even going up for context to verse 19, Paul is praying this prayer that the eyes of those church members, right? Because this letter is written to a church. They're in Ephesus. Paul's praying for them that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened, would be opened up to the reality and the riches and depths of what Christ has done in redeeming his people in and through the church. So verse 20, he exercised this power in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him to the right hand. This is not a theory. This is not a thought. This is not, uh, I would even venture to say, it's not even a presupposition. This is, this is fact. This is bedrock. That if we have gone away from the work of Christ in redeeming us, through his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and glorious ascension, if we're not grounded in that truth, where are we? What are we doing? So Paul says, this is reality. This isn't fairy tale. This is 
fact bases it on the resurrection and ascension. That through this, God the Father has allowed, he has, he has sat Jesus at the right hand. Where? In the heavens. Reality. That when this happened, <laughs> when Jesus was ascended to, into heaven, the disciples are just in amazement. As we all would be too. To the extent that the angels have to come and say, what are you doing? He's going to come in the same way. Sorry, just, he's floating into heaven. Fact. Again, we see this victorious reign from the text that Becky read for us earlier. It's grounded in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. The subheading of that chapter in 1 Corinthians is that Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. That his victory over death secures our victory. That we have a reigning and victorious king who reigns over all things sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. Again, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 grounds the work and the humbling nature of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and saying, rooting that in, because Jesus has done this, he has been glorified. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's reality. That there is coming a day where our reigning and victorious king will set his gaze on earth once again to bring his church with him in glory and to judge those who are wicked and not following Christ. So the victory of Christ is ultimate in its reality, but it's also ultimate in its extent. Who or where is he reigning? He's reigning in heaven. But he's also reigning over all authorities, all powers, all dominions. When I was younger, I would go to my great-grandmother's house and play with... They weren't, some of them were Lincoln logs, but then other things were just building blocks. And I would, I would try and build the, this amazing tower and act like it was this castle and I was the king. In a home that was not mine, with toys that were not mine. But here I am, the self-professed king. In one sense, that's what we see. In a day-to-day. Those who rule and govern are doing so on foreign soil, under the rule and reign of a sovereign God. How often we forget that, but as if Paul is speaking to us today, this Jesus is above every ruler and authority, power and dominion. And he just, he loves these run-on sentences in Ephesians. So it's like he's trying to get everything out. And Oh yeah, I, f- I forgot. So powers, rulers, authorities, titles given. Anything that you can think of, Jesus is over that. Oh yeah, not just titles given, but not just in this age, but in the age that is to come. So church, beloved, those who have trusted in the redeeming work of Christ, we have a victorious king who is above all things. So if he is above all, all authorities, all dominions, all titles given, not just in this time, but for the age that is to come, why would we ever seek to get on board with somebody else? Here we are, Super Bowl Sunday, and my social media timelines are are just filled with Kansas City Chiefs people and Tampa Bay Buccaneers people, and I'm kind of just like, that's great. We are so struck and we are so drawn to have a propensity to swear allegiance to other lesser things. 
That's coming from me who just put all of my baseball caps on my wall up in my office. I, I, I do this too. That if we're not careful, these things that are meant as joys can become our king. They can guide and direct our lives where they shouldn't. So Jesus is head because he's over everything. Far above everything. I don't know why, but my, my little cord is like trying to strangle me. Not really. I'm okay. But especially true that if the extent of the reign of Jesus being ultimate is true in all of existence, how much more so should it be in the church? The one who purchased the church by his own blood. The one who seeks for the the good of the church in everything. Laying his life down for the church. He says that they are my sheep. I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. He secured the redemption of those by his own blood. So this is so serious in the church that we can so easily preach Christ and then seek to adopt modern marketing techniques or communication techniques to be ultimately effective. Now hear me out. I'm a communications major. I went to seminary. I value the accuracy of the words that I teach and preach with. I value getting that word out. But if we start to switch our focus from a a victorious Jesus and a powerful gospel as the only means by which the Lord will bring people into his church by redeeming them and saving them, we've missed it. This is what's known as pragmatism. And I've seen so many churches that I've been a part of that immediately turn, yes, Jesus is victorious. His gospel is great. But we have to have, have you heard this new Sunday school material? And then it slips into... We've, we've got to have screens up on stage. Like the bulletins are fine and they have the lyrics and everything, but like we need screens, plasma screens. We need, we need lights. We need all of these. We, we need a, a bat signal out front with the church's logo that, that draws people. You say that's hilarious. I'm sure we're not the only ones that have thought about this, but unfortunately, churches have turned to that so often. Now hear me out. We need to be creative about the ways that we are fulfilling the Great Commission to go. Right? Us saying we're not going to be pragmatic has no relation to us fulfilling the Great Commission of going and making disciples. So we are creative, but we're biblical. That Jesus is victorious and that the powerful gospel is the only means that will save a person. So we may warm up some seats, but if people aren't catching a vision for this victorious and reigning king, we've missed what the church is marked out to be. An outpost that images, that reflects this victorious king. I had an additional example of that, but I think the Spirit is kind in having me forget it. So pragmatism isn't being a true church. What we need as a true church is we need Jesus. We need his victory, his gospel, and to faithfully proclaim that message until we're blue in the face.
So the victory of Jesus is ultimate in its extent. And it's ultimate in its reality. And thirdly, it's ultimate in its duration. So not only is Jesus seated above all things and has all things subjected under his authority, that reign and victory is not temporal. You see, with pragmatism, finding that new hit material, it's going to be outdated. That new book about discipleship is going to have a shelf life. But the victory of Jesus and his gospel is eternal in duration. It has been eternal from time beginning, and it will be eternal. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him. He is eternal in heaven and on earth, visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. And he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross." It is secure. The victory that Jesus has is secure because the work that he did is secure. It's finished. And as we read in our call to worship from Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the reign of Christ is eternal. That around the throne room of heaven, the angels are singing this song. His reign is eternal. So his victory is reality. His victory is seen in its extent, and its victory is seen in the duration of its extent. It is eternal. But not only is the victory of Christ secure, not only is the victory of Christ ultimate, the victory of Christ secures the victory of the church. The victory of Christ assures the victory of the church. Here's how one commentator summarizes this point. The head of the church is a victorious and powerful Lord. On this basis, Christ can impart to the church all of the empower, empowering resources it needs to re resist the attacks of power and to engage in the mission of filling the world that God has called it to. When you start to write in cursive, you start to not be able to read what you've written. So I'm going to say that one more time. This is Clint Arnold in his commentary on the book of Ephesians. The head of the church is a victorious and powerful Lord. And on this basis, Christ can impart to the church all of the empowering resources it needs to resist the attacks of power and to engage in the mission of filling the world that God has called it to. The victory of Christ secures the victory of the church. Matthew 16, we talked on it last week, that when Peter gives this confession, Jesus responds and says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And on the rock of this confession, I will build my church. And even the gates of hell will not come 
against it. That as long as the church stands and sides with Christ, he will uphold his promise to not let anything come against her. And in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom. And he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So that this victory of Christ, securing the victory of the church, now the church is a visible outpost proclaiming the victory of Christ. This is our third point. The church is a visible outpost, proclaims the victory of Christ. How does it do this? It does this when it gathers. It does this when it gathers. When the New Testament writers speak of the church, when Jesus speaks of the church, they use the Greek word ekklesia, which is the gathering, that individual redeemed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they gather together, something profound and powerful happens. Why? Because of the peculiarity of its members. Now, I don't mean, yeah, that member is pretty peculiar, a little odd, a little strange maybe. No, the peculiarity of this church, of the makeup of the body of individual redeemed believers into this collective whole is seen through just as the kingdom of God is. That at the kingdom of God, at the throne of heaven, every tribe and tongue and people and nation is worshiping the Lamb. So if we're to be a visible outpost of this victorious king representing his kingdom, we ought to get on board with what his kingdom is like. Titus begins to talk about the benefit of having older men discipling Younger men, that younger men are to bestow honor on older men, that younger women are to bestow honor on older women, that older women are to treat these these uh, younger women as daughters in the faith. That if we have a single generation church, we're not rightly representing the kingdom of God. And we're taking away from individual believers receiving benefit from others in different life stages, different experiences, different testimonies of how the Lord saved them at different times, different graces of how the Lord's continuing to work in their life through the word. So the church is peculiar in that it's made up of multiple generations. It is intergenerational. But the church also is not just intergenerational, is interracial. That the church's intention, Paul later in Ephesians, says that through the cross of Jesus, he reconciles people of different ethnic backgrounds, therefore making peace by the power of his cross. So this is a distinction between the New Testament church and the Old Testament people of God. Whereas the Old Testament people of God were an ethnic similar people, the people of Israel. Now in the New Testament, both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God in Christ. Think of our community. I mean, the Hispanic brothers and sisters that we honestly might not be able to communicate with. They're those made in the image of God. And if they're not trusting in Christ, they are enemies of him right now. And we are called to proclaim a message of a victorious king. And that means we love our Hispanic neighbors 
down the road, and we pray for them, and we think, how can we accommodate to them? Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that I might reach some. That means our African-American brothers and sisters that feel disenfranchised with Southern Baptist churches. We proclaim a gospel that reconciles all of us to God through Christ. So it's multi-generational. It's multi-racial. That means that if we have problems or prejudices with different skin tones, we got to check that at the door, folks. We have to check that at the door. There is no room in the church or in the gospel or in the kingdom of God for racial prejudices or racism. It has no place that if we're not open, accommodating, I look at this room right now, And if I were an African-American brother or sister, I would feel very uncomfortable. But I remember where we were at a year and a half ago. Where it was like, you all. No kids upstairs. So for any guest, it would have been somewhat uncomfortable. So we've got to share that same love that we have with one another, no matter what they look like, no matter what they talk like, so that the gospel of a victorious king would be faithfully proclaimed through our local church. The moment that we say redemption in Christ is limited to certain people or types of people, We've lost it. So the church is also a visible outpost, not only when it gathers to worship because of the peculiarity of its members, it's also a visible outpost because of the message it proclaims. Paul tells Timothy in one of the pastoral epistles, he says, don't get bogged down with these useless genealogies and myths and things that aren't worth your time. But what does he say? Guard the good deposit. Preach the word. Then in Acts chapter 28, what does Peter and the other apostles do? They go out and they proclaim the kingdom of God. A victorious king. So when we gather, we're peculiar and our message is powerful. So that is how a church is designed to represent a victorious king in everything that we do. So when our statement of faith says Jesus is the head, when our church covenant says Jesus is the head, if, if, if there are questions of would Jesus really do that? Let's, let's see. So to be a people who will proclaim the victory of the reign of Christ, we have to know Him. We have to spend time in His Word To know what he has said. And he is not silent. So the victory of Christ is sure. The victory of Christ then secures the victory of the church. And thirdly, the church is a visible outpost. Proclaiming the victory of Christ. When it gathers through its members and through its message. We're going to get into this later in the series, talking about church membership, talking about church governance, talking about uh, pastors and deacons, and we'll probably talk about the gospel a little bit more. But even in those things, when we write the structure Apart from what God has said and ordained, we've already missed it. We've already started off on the wrong foot. 
So therefore, in everything that we do, in our proclamation and in our form and structure, we seek to proclaim a victorious Christ because we are a visible outpost. Christ receives no glory, just as we talked about in Sunday school. Christ receives no glory from those who take upon themselves His name. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And their lives are so opposite of the Bible, that does not proclaim the truth of being a Christian. And I want to counter to that because it's easy to be like, yeah, we can be following the Bible and we can be in every indication seeking to proclaim a victorious Jesus, but we could be extremely big jerks. Both of those things are harmful. That a Christian in name only and not founded on the truth of Scripture gives no glory to God just as little as a Christian who is a jerk. May our boast be in Christ because our faith is a gift of grace, not of ourselves. So what are some applications? The first application, I hope this hits home. And we see this in the text because when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh. The work of Christ and his reign is for you. The work of Christ and his reign is for you. It's for you. It's for me. And praise be to God that the work of Christ and his subsequent victory and reign is for me individually, accomplishing redemption, accomplishing justification. But it's also for you. As a church, these truths of being over every power and dominion and God the Father subjecting everything under Jesus' feet and appointing Him as head over everything for the church. The gifts of Jesus' reign and victory is for the church. As Arnold says, empowering resources that the church needs to resist the attacks of power and to engage in the mission of filling the world that God has called it to do. So the work of Christ redeems. The work of Christ works as you fight sin and temptation. And the work of Christ goes forward in our proclamation Because the work of Christ then brings the Spirit who indwells us to powerfully proclaim the gospel. This benefit is so that you would be full. So there's this beautiful reciprocity when we think about a local church. That we trust in Christ. And by trusting in Christ, we then worship Him. Among among a local church. We don't just worship Jesus individually. We do it among a local ecclesia, a gathering that we have covenanted to, that we then proclaim in our worship and in our words and our work outside of our time, the hope of Christ in the gospel. So we worship together that then causes us in hearing other saints and believers Singing praise to God, it wells up within us a continued desire to want to worship God more and to then want to be in the house of other believers more. And so we keep worshiping together. I firmly believe that there is no other institution like the New Testament church. I hope that warms your heart with me being your pastor. 
I do not think there's anything that even scratches the surface of what the New Testament local church is. That it is so drastically distinct to the extent that Jesus would say he comes to separate families by the gospel. Our ultimate relationships should happen in the local church. That's why the writer of Hebrews gives a warning. Don't forsake the assembling of one another. <laughs> Layman's terms, go to church. <laughs> and don't just go to church physically. Go to church. Be with the church. Hear the church sing. Hear the church affirm. The gospel is true and Jesus is victorious. So we're going to clap about it. So go to church. Invite people to church because there's nowhere else that these truths, these realities are promised. There's no other place where these truths and realities are expected. There's no other place where these truths and realities are required. So the fruit of that is how do we as individual believers Seek to be the church. I think a really quick and easy way, look at the back of the bulletin. Read that church membership covenant that we've all committed to. Think about how can I care for one another? How can I pray for one another? Text me, text Derek. Hey, I need that membership directory. We've got to be what is expected and required because when we are an outpost that resembles and proclaims a victorious king, the world will see. The world will see. Second application, since Christ has authority over all things, hopefully this comes to the natural progression. If you are a believer, he has authority over you. If Christ has authority over all things. If you are a believer, he has authority over you. Ruling and reigning in our lives. So, getting strangled some more. A twofold rhythm that we should be worshiping and repenting in. Jesus. The reality is that we have sinful hearts that put up almost anything on the pedestal where only God through Christ is worthy. So we should be worshiping Jesus, but when our hearts fail us, when sin creeps in and we don't feel like worshiping Jesus and we start to fall for the lies and schemes of the devil that say, you are worthless, you are not to have been redeemed, you're of no value at all. We remind ourselves of the word and we continue to worship and repent because that's the same thing that we did when we came to know Christ. My sins, they are many. That apart from Christ's work, I am utmost dirt. But in Christ, I am valued. So we continue to worship and repent. And thirdly and finally, in Christ, we have everything we need. We have everything we need. We ought not go anywhere else. God has set him far above every ruler and authority and has subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church. In Christ, we have everything we need. Man, this is the church. This is the church. And I pray that as we continue to walk in obedience to the scripture, that our love for one another would grow, 
that our desire to be with one another would grow. I'll just give a quick affirmation. I'm on calls with pastors every week from all over the place. Some of them lamenting and grieving over the fact that some of their church members aren't coming back. Go out to eat. He'll go to ball tournaments. He'll go to the store. He'll go to other sporting events. And when asked, they say, Pastor, we're, we're scared. This virus is scary. Which it is. On the one hand, you want to affirm that. But on the other hand, you want to say, you're going everywhere else. So as I listen to their laments and I listen to their grieving, I'm reminded that the week that we stopped meeting in person and went online, ever since then, the plan and the desire and the zeal from every one of you, some more than most, how and how quickly, what do we need to do to meet together? What do we need to do to meet together. And man, I tell you what, that's a blessing. Pastor, you want us to wear, we'll wear masks. Does that mean we can meet together? Well, yep, we'll wear masks. Do I need to rub my tummy and jump on one foot too? Because we'll do that too. You guys have been so zealous to meet Can't, can't do that. Okay. We won't set that up as a requirement. You guys have been so zealous to want to meet together. And my desire is that more than just from 9.30 to noon. Whoa! That even when the pastor goes overtime, your desire to want to meet together outside of this building, proclaiming a glorious king, would continue to grow. I'm way over time for us to do the Lord's Supper, but we're going to do it anyway. Because in the Lord's Supper, in the ordinances, when we get to that in this series, we see that in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, don't look at your watch. You don't need to. I already did. I already know where we're at. And I'm not sorry. I thought I was going to be way shorter than this. But in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, we see the truths of the gospel with our eyes. That the faith that is hidden, those things that are unseen, we see through the Lord's Supper and baptism. So let's sing and worship and observe the Lord's Supper in just a moment.